At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Spin It Social Hour. My name is Stephen Kaplan, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here with everybody for, are you ready for this? Show number 40. Okay, I'm not going to hold up my other hand because I have something in my hand that I have to use it for as we continue this production, but show number 40, amazing. Um, all thanks to um, getting through this pandemic. And I hope that everyone is doing as well as possible. It's been a long journey, a long road, um, uh, with a lot of crazy weather lately too. But I hope everyone's warm and safe and taking care of their loved ones. And I wish you all well. So the Spinach Social Hour is a labor of love born out of care and concern for our photo community. I've been on a journey letting photographers show their work and tell their stories now for 40 shows. And I am a social media and visual strategist and a live stream producer. I have worked with the likes of the Pulitzer Prizes doing live social media. I am, also, I am also an adjunct professor at FIT teaching the fundamentals of social media to photography students. I've worked with AARP and the Jackson Charitable Foundation and I've worked with Sri Srinivasan and the Digi Mentors Group doing live stream productions and many other things around the world. So once again, a pleasure to be here, everybody. But tonight we are here to bring on for Black History Month something very, very special. I wanted to do something different. So I reached out to Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I fell in love with two things about this whole story. One is Bob's amazing ability to tell stories. He's one of the best storytellers I've ever seen. And uh, he, I think he single-handedly has made me get my juices ready for baseball again. Fell a little off the, off the bandwagon there for a while, but I'm back. Always been a Yankee fan, wearing my hat here. But, um, and the Negro Leagues Museum, to honor them, the players and the history of 
everything that they endured and everything they did for everyone in the in the future. So one of the things I wanted to do as usual is give the buildup that every photographer deserves. But tonight we're going to do the buildup for the collection that the museum has. So enjoy this. Welcome to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of America. People come here expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players and you're going to leave not being disappointed. You're going to meet some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. You walk away with an even greater appreciation for just how special this country really is. Because the story of the Negro Leagues could have only happened in America. Yes, it is anchored in the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you then I'll just create a league of my own. Those leagues, the Negro Leagues, were formed right here in Kansas City. They helped make the game the global game that it is today. And quite frankly, the Negro League didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play. These athletes loved the game of baseball so much that they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them as they travel the highways and byways of our country just to play baseball. That passion would not only change our sport, but it would change our country. Tonight, we give a tip of the hat to Bob Kendrick, the museum, and the Negro League players that have gotten us to this point where we are today. Today, I'm tipping my hat to everybody in the Negro Leagues who left a century-long legacy of talent and spirit and dignity on our country. So here's to Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, and everybody else, including three brave women who did us all proud. I got my start in the Negro League, and I will be forever grateful. Thank you. Congratulations. Okay, now we're ready for him. Here he is, everybody, the great Bob Kendrick. Bob, how are you, man? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Stephen. It's a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, no, please. It is an honor, man. I tell you, like I said, I think you've single-handedly rejuvenated my passion for baseball. Um, I grew up watching the Yankees. I went to many Yankee games as a kid. Um, I, you know, I followed Chris Chambliss and Mickey Rivers and, and Reggie and Heathcliff Johnson and Roy White. You can go down the list, man, right? 
And it's all because of the Negro Leagues, right? And everything that started here. So I wanted to have you on. But first of all, how are you doing? How's everything? How's your family? How are you making it through everything lately? Yeah, you know, we're, we're blessed, man. All of us are doing well and we're healthy and reasonably sane during these crazy times, which is so hard to stay sane. But no, things are well. The museum is doing good. We had to shut down uh, a few days this week here in Kansas City because temperatures were so frigid and we shut the place down. But outside of that, we're, we're hanging tough and, you know, trying to keep this thing moving. We had a great press conference on Saturday to, yeah. to commemorate the 101st anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues and made some exciting announcements associated with that and, you know, uh, announced three new acquisitions, major acquisitions for the museum to our collection. One, of course, uh, provided by the late, great Penny Marshall. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and man, it's, it's special. It's special because of who she is. Really? Who she was. And, and I knew that she was a baseball fan. Obviously, she had directed the blockbuster film, A League of Her Own. And, uh, but I did not know that she was as big a Negro Leagues fan and mm. had this significant collection that she had been putting together for some years. And we were totally surprised when the estate called and said, Ms. Marshall has left her collection. Would you all like to have it? Right. Well, naturally, the answer was yes. And it really didn't matter what was in it. it it's just a matter of the fact that it was Penny Marshall's collection. Right. And, and to think that she thought enough about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to do that, it just touches me. It warms my heart. We were excited to unveil portions of the collection mm -hmm. on Saturday. And, you know, we also picked up a 19th century letter written by Bud Fowler. Fowler was one of the early... Wow. Black players, you know, along with Edward White, Moses Fleetwood Walker, Bud Fowler, they are typically the guys who have been associated with being the first Blacks to play on professional white teams. Right. And this handwritten letter from Bud Fowler was written to Charles Comiskey, the owner of the Chicago White Sox, dated 1908. There's not a lot of Fowler signed pieces out there. So we were very fortunate to bring that into the fold. Right. And then a collection that belonged to a Seattle businessman that mm. is really substantial. Mm. And it included a the actual financial journal that belonged to Andrew Roop Foster. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. And this financial journal documents all the business transactions that took place in the Negro National League from 1920 until 1925. Right. And for us, this is really the holy grail. I mean, because what we're always constantly trying to convey and help people understand, it's so easy for folks to get lost in the romantic nature of these very courageous ball players who overcame tremendous social adversity to go on to play the game they love, That's that right. we sometimes lose sight that this was a thriving black business enterprise. Right, right. Third largest black owned business in this country right. during that era of American segregation. That's right. Well, this brings that story to the forefront. Wow, when I saw this, when yeah. I saw this, I flipped. I was like, I mean, talk about a, a, a true priceless treasure. 
Oh man. I mean, and literally one of a kind. And one of a kind. I mean, not only just not only because of the format of the ledger and 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 that type of book and binding and everything else, but the way he kept his notes yes. and everything else. Look at how meticulous everything absolutely. was. Uh, absolutely. And so we're thrilled to bring that into the fold. It it speaks to the genius of Ruth Foster. Right. Who was basically able to accomplish what others had attempted to do but failed. Right. And that was to create a successful, organized Black baseball league. There had been some other attempts to do so. Right. But Rube had the juice. He had the magic well, to be able to get it done. So let me ask you a question, because I've been thinking about this all week. And my co-producer, Jonathan, who's going to come on later and say hello and ask a question of his own and everything else. Um, we were talking this week. And where, where, did the where did he get the name Rube from? He got the name Rube because as a young ball player himself, he was a great pitcher. He beat the legendary Rube Waddell in a head-to-head -head matchup. Ah. Uh-huh. The great major leaguer, Rube Waddell. And, and Rube fought, well, at that time, Andrew Foster beat him in a head-to-head -head matchup. And, and then they nicknamed him Rube. And he was Rube until the day he died. But okay. yeah, that's where the nickname came from. Okay. Okay. I was just curious about that, but I, I, you know, I did so much research this week for the show and I have to tell you, I learned so much. I mean, I grew up listening to stories about Satchel Paige and many others and, you know, uh, saw a fair, a few documentaries and everything, uh -huh. but this listening to, and we'll show a clip in a bit, uh, listening to, um, and I have to tell you, I binged watch this week. We were joking about that. Um, we, we binged watch. I binged watched, and I watched. So you produced this, uh, no, you didn't produce, but you were uh, narrating uh, 22 stories uh, about the history of the Negro Leagues and the players. Yeah. And I have to tell you, after I watched the first one, I had to watch like three a day for the whole week. <laughs> so there's 22 videos. I yes. started doing the research for this seven days ago. So I watched almost three a day <laughs> and my son turned towards me and he said to me, wow, you're really into all of that, aren't you this week? He's 14, you know? And he was like, I said, yeah, I said, you should watch them with me. And he watched some of them, you know, and stuff, but it's, it's been a, it's been a tough thing homeschooling the whole oh, week. Absolutely. So, so yeah. I've been, I give him a lot of slack, you know? <laughs> yeah, and as, as should, because, it has to be awfully challenging for our young folks to have to, number one, do all of this virtually. And, and so it's challenging for me to sit in front of these things and do the virtual meetings and that kind of stuff. So right. I can only imagine what it must be like for them. And my nine-year-old granddaughter, she is, she's pained by doing it, but she knows she has to do it. But right. she gets to do it in a hybrid situation. So she gets to go to school couple of days a week. So she gets to see a few of her friends and it's the right. social thing that I think they miss the most, you know, and, it is. and, and, and it we is. can't understate how important the social aspect of school really is. Right. And, and so, you know, they're, they're all missing that, but you know what? I miss it too. So I understand. <laughs> I know. I know. I, you know. I was talking to Jonathan before we started the show and, and that's really one of the biggest things for me. I'm very hands-on. So I am constantly inside the gallery, meeting people, right. talking to them, walking around, telling stories, right. hugging, high-fiving, taking pictures, <laughs> and, 
And, and then all of a sudden you can't do that. Well, you know, I showed that part. Um, by the way, if you have a little extra light, it might help. Do you have a little extra light? I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah, no, let me see if I can can get a little bit. Just, of... just for yourself. So this yeah. way, um, so this way, um, because uh, it's, uh, there you go. There you go. See if we can. If I can do a little rigging here. No, that's fine. Don't 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 take it too far. I just wanted yeah. to mention it, so I didn't want you to go through the whole interview. Uh, okay, that's great. So one of the things, Bob, you know, that I was looking at in the, in the slideshow I put together, and I went through so many photos because you know this is a show about photography, and when I wanted yeah. to reach out to you, I wanted to highlight something because I looked through all these photos of the museum, but I also looked at plenty of photos of the museum. Mm -hmm. And I noticed what an incredible job you guys have done of illustrating everything. It's like you walk in, but, but tell us, tell us the special part about when you walk in the museum that I've learned so much about, but I want you tell the story, please. Well, it's the field of legends. Right. And, and the field of legends folks is a mock baseball diamond. But what happens is when you walk into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, you've essentially walked into an old ballpark. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that you see as you go through the after you go through the turnstile is the field. And you look through this chicken wire. And, and even the chicken wire, Stefan, is symbolic of American segregation. Right. You see, during that era, if black fans were allowed in to watch a major league game, Mm -hmm. That is oftentimes how we were separated with the chicken wire barrier. So black fans would sit either down the left or right field lines, and then we'd be separated from white fans who would sit in the rest of the ballpark. Right. So we use that chicken wire to separate all of our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. So this incredible field that has 10 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats, and they are cast in position as if they were playing a game. And they represent 10 of the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. Right. And, and on the outside looking in almost poetically is my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, who in this capacity is managing this great all-star team. So really what happens is our guests come in, you can see, peer through that chicken wire, you can see the field, but you can't get to it. Right. And so the only way that you are allowed to take the field at the Negro Leagues Museum is mm -hmm. you have to earn that right. Right. And you do so by learning their stories. And so by the time you've bared witness to everything that they had to endure just to play baseball in this country, then the last thing that happens is you get to take the field. And you know, in respect, you're now you've you're now worthy. Yeah. To walk out on the field yeah. with 10 of the baddest brothers to ever play this game. I love when you say that because you know what? That is the that is the absolute truth. I mean, if you if you look at the caliber of players that have uh Edwards here, Edward is a huge fan of this show, and he has the most incredible questions all the time and statements. So let's read it real quick here. Edward says, it's amazing when artifacts and documents are attached to human beings, especially those who are not around anymore. The beauty is they live on by what they left us, a time machine for future generations. And sometimes they leave us unique footprints and insight in shoes only they can walk in. And the magic is, is we can feel and remember what it was like. Wow, Edward, I tell you, you are incredible. That is really so true. 
Yeah, no, Edward is incredible. That was beautiful, man. He typed that in like in 30 seconds, too. Yeah. <laughs> he is amazing. Um, he was on a show uh, about uh, our last show. Uh, he documented the steel industry in in uh, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, amazing, amazing. Anyway, but, you know, I love when you say that because when you look at the caliber of players that, oh my God, I mean, it just, it drives me insane thinking about it. I only wish I could have seen them play in real life. Yeah. You know, I do too. I, I, I really do. And through the eyes of so many of the players that I got to meet, Buck O'Neill, Monty, right. Minnie Minoso, Ernie Banks, right. like that, who brought those players to life for me, right? you know, through their words and through their vision and memories. And, and now I try to channel that when I share these stories. Now, most of these stories I heard firsthand from those who lived them. I right. didn't live them. Right. My job is to hopefully try to bring them to life. Right. And, and for me, there's no greater compliment when someone comes to the museum and I've spoken and they say, I felt like I was there. You made me feel like I was there. And, and I think for any of us who are quote unquote storytellers, right. that is exactly what you want to do. You want to paint a picture that is so vivid that you feel like you have gone back in time and you are you're standing in the box. Well, you know what? You know what? Statue. You know what really warmed my heart going through all the photos? And I have to tell you, uh, you know, going through your uh, all the curating all of this for the show because you've been busy everybody's busy i took it upon myself i curated all the photos and i have to tell you um it warmed my heart when i see how much you interact with everybody at the museum and you know you just have that incredible special quality that was needed to be not only the president yeah. but what i would more call you than just the pre and don't take this is that you are the ultimate ambassador for the museum yeah, yeah. you really are but and I, I appreciate that. That means a lot because, again, I think a lot of it is the spillover effect from being around the great Buck O'Neill. Okay. And and Buck had as much impact on my life as anyone outside mm -hmm. of my mother and father mm -hmm. and, and, and one of my brothers who I'm so close to. Buck has had as much impact as anyone. And to see how he dealt with people mm -hmm. and to see the energy and the passion that he had for this project. And, and when I first met him, this was in 1993. I'm a volunteer for the museum at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising that we had never crossed paths in our social circles. Kansas City's not that big in the grand scheme of things. It's not Manhattan, you no. know, it's not New York City. Right. Uh, Kansas City's not that big, but we had never crossed paths in our social circle. Mm. And so I started volunteering for the museum in 1993. Who knew? You know, mm. you go from being a volunteer to now trying to run the place. And so, but when I first met Buck, one of the first things that I asked him was, mm -hmm. Buck, what motivated you to want to build a Negro Leagues baseball museum? Mm. And his answer was succinct, but also profound. Mm. Yeah, it was Vintage Buck O'Neill, so that we would be remembered. That wow. was it. He yeah. wanted to make sure that their contributions to this game, and then more importantly, their contributions to this nation mm -hmm. would not be forgotten. Mm -hmm. and, and that is what drove him for 16 years, building this museum, 
serving as his chairman for all those years, voluntarily, voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Didn't get paid a dime mm -hmm. to do it. Well, and you know, when you're around that, man, you just, you want to be a part of it. And for yeah. me, I just wanted to be a part of helping this organization in any way that I possibly could. I didn't know that it would turn into a passion. I didn't know that it was, would turn into a career. And, and you know, as fate has, has, as fate has have it, it has done just that. And, and I feel so tremendous. But you know, but, but you know, you've, you've, you've walked into something and you've come into something as the president and, and the, like I said, the ultimate ambassador for the museum that most people only dream about because it's, it's so passionate in you that, that it's, you're living, you're living, you're living a dream in a way of being able to be, educate people about such an important part of American history, not just black history, as yeah. we know, as, as yeah. I've heard you tell many people, yeah. but this is the true roots of American history here. No, you know, it, it really is. And, and, and guys, I fell in love with this story. The minute I stepped foot inside the Negro Leagues Museum. Mm -hmm. And at mm -hmm. that time, the Negro Leagues Museum was just a small one room office. Right. And guys like Buck O'Neill and other local Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time, sad to say, they've all passed on. All the ones that used to call Kansas City home, they've all passed on now. Oh, but wow. Hold on. Look at this. Barry Richards, who's a friend of mine, actually, I never knew this. Beautiful. He said, my late dad played for the New Orleans Black Pelicans late in league's existence. Thank you for all you do and have done, Mr. Kendrick. Truly a labor of love. I'm sorry, Bob. I had to read no, that. No, no, man. That, that is fantastic, Barry. And, and I know you have to be tremendously proud uh, of what your dad did and, and the fact that he was a part of this amazing story. And, and so, but yeah, man, I just fell in love with the story. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. I consider myself to be a baseball fan. Yeah. And here was this entire world of baseball that I really did not know very much about. Right. I knew the name Satchel Page and Cool Papa Bell right. and Josh Gibson. These are names that transcended mainstreamly. Most baseball fans have at least heard of those names. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't know truly how great they really were, you've right. heard, likely heard that name or That's those right. names. That's but right. Man, I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude that these leagues represented both on and off the field. Mm -hmm. And the more I got engaged with it, the more excited I became. And, and I didn't want to keep this to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way 
that <laughs> I felt about it. And then you started to meet the players. You know, right. you meet a Buck O'Neill. Right. And, and as I tell people all the time, once you're bitten by the buck bug, man, <laughs> it is a wrap. You just won't. Oh, I love that. You did. You know, the charisma, the energy, the passion for what he wanted to get done to build this museum. Well, it was you just know, amazing. It was infectious. I look at all the photos of him that, that I went through, and I pulled a lot of these, and I've been showing them as we're talking, as you've seen. He just had this contagious like aura about him, yeah. and you could just see that he was such a genuine, beautiful human being. Yeah, you know? no, I mean, you just perfectly described who Buck O'Neill was. There was an innateness about him. You know, it really was. And he had this amazing ability to forgive. Mm. You know, and I found this to be a quality with all of the players that I've ever met who were part of the Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. None of them ever harbored any bitterness or ill will toward anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them during their time of trying to play baseball in this country. Mm -hmm. Had they been bitter, I think every one of us would have said, you have every right to be bitter. Right. But to a person, I never met one that harbored any bitterness. Well, mm -hmm. number one, you could not convince them that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played anywhere right. in the world. Right. Yeah, everybody just believed that it was being played in the major leagues. They never really did. So they obviously wanted to prove to the world they were good as anybody, but you couldn't convince them they weren't playing the best baseball. Right. And, and so yet they would never allow their hearts to be hardened with hate. And I think that's why so many of them live such a long life yeah. you know because hate as buck would say hate kills you man no it really it really inside. Yeah. yeah yeah no i i i agree 100 percent. and anybody would you know uh, you know with any sense that way would and 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 love in their heart because it does it, ju it just eats you up grudges all that stuff it, it serves no purpose now you it know? takes a lot of energy to hate another human being well that's what i that's what I love what you said once. I saw an interview with you and you said that Buck said that, uh, if I may call him Buck. Yeah, um, well, he would I, insist it. I've he always, would. I always believe in respect. So, yeah, no, you, know. you know, everybody would try to say, Mr. O'Neill. He said, no, my father was Mr. O'Neill. I'm Buck. <laughs> well, the one thing I heard you say about him was that, you know, he always said that, that it takes so much more to hate than to love, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know, and and you look at the smile on him. You look at look at these photos that I put together. You know of him, um, and and then near the uh, near the uh, hotel that we're going to talk about. Uh, I have some photos that I want to show him as the manager uh, later on of of the Cubs and everything. I mean, look at every photo. He's smiling. He has. Oh, has Always. this beautiful way of it. Look at this. I mean, even <laughs> dressed to dressed to the nine. And and looking as sharp as ever with that beautiful smile and, you know, presenting himself to the world, you know, um, just just absolutely incredible. But, you know, I wanted to shoot back to the beginning here. Uh, I'm going to have to go back because I wanted to cue those up real fast. Um, so pardon me going through these like that. No, that's OK. But I queued up a lot of photos to show us. I wanted to step back, though. Uh, I want, I'm glad you started talking about Buck first, because you know what? The love is there. And I wanted you to talk about that. I did not want to leave a second of that behind. So I'm glad we did that first. But 
tell me about, you know, the important, well, we know the importance, but tell me in your view, the importance of having such an incredible collection of photos, number one, and number two, how incredible it is to continuously get and find through people and great concerned citizens and lovers of baseball and humanity at large that donate and find so many things and that you add to the collection of the museum as we as we go through some of these photos. Yeah, no, it's, it's important. And, and most of our collection is photographic in nature. Now, we have a fair share of three-dimensional items. And, and honestly, I say 95% of the things that we have in our collection on display at the museum, they were donated either by the players and or their families. Mm -hmm. And it's only been over the last maybe 10 years that we've started to try and actively pursue items when they come up for auction. You know, we've almost become our own worst enemy. The more we popularize the story, we're driving the market on these rare items that makes it difficult for us to go get them. We don't have the big budgets to be able to go right. out and purchase these things. Right. So it's extra special when folks find something and say, would you all like to have this? Yes, we right. would. Because right. there is no insignificant item when it comes to these treasures from the Negro Leagues. Because inevitably, there is a story behind every single item that we receive. Oh, for and sure. So when it comes to jerseys, uniforms, bats, gloves, mm -hmm. we already know that it's going to be difficult for us to compete to go get them. Mm -hmm. These things now fetch sometimes six figures. You know, that's how explosive wow. the collecting business is. And oh, yeah. So, oh. yeah, we already know that it would be a challenge for us to get it. Oh, yeah, because could you imagine if Sotheby's, no disrespect to Sotheby's, oh, but but if any of these huge auction houses got a hold of this, you'd never get your hands on them. <laughs> we, we, we could never get it. We we could absolutely no. never get it. We, we you know, and, and even if we had the resources, I would have to still be very prudent about how we spend of course. that kind of money. Of course. But we always want these things to come home to Kansas City. Absolutely. Where they are going to be treasured and valued and the world will get to enjoy them. Yeah, because... And I can tell you now, we've gotten stuff through some of the most, you know, oddest kinds of ways. One of my favorite stories is a guy was demolishing a home here in Kansas City. And in the process of demolishing the home, there was a mirror on the wall. Well, the mirror fell and broke. Well, very much in, in African-American tradition, you would back the mirror with cardboard. The, the mirror would always have this cardboard backing. Okay. Usually taken from a box or something okay. of that nature. Okay. This, this, the backing behind this mirror was an actual original Kansas City Monarch game day poster. Wow. Uh-huh. And it was a little bit tattered. And he brought it to us and asked if we wanted it. Well, naturally, we wanted it. Oh, my God. And, and, of course, you know they say if you break a mirror, that's supposed to be seven years of bad luck. Now, I don't know whatever happened to the young man that brought us the poster. I hope he's okay. But it was certainly good luck for us. And, and so, but, you know, again, there are always these stories behind the story. And so 
you know, we're constantly out there scouring to try to bring these wow. pieces home, and wow. you know, we want them to be in Kansas City. Let's let's take Boa Smith, uh, Boa Smith's question here. With the inclusion of Negro League Baseball in MLB Hall of Fame, does this challenge the existence of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bob? Well, and, and that's a great question, Boa, because that has been the concern of some who were not necessarily overwhelmed by the idea of what baseball had done. Mm -hmm. It's not really my real concern. Mm -hmm. What I think it does is it now, it, it, it really connects us to Major League Baseball. Okay. And I think that it makes the Negro Leagues Museum even more important because Boa's concern is legit. What will eventually happen 20, 25, 30 years from now, mm -hmm. a new baseball fan is going to see the names of Gibson and Bell and Page right there alongside those legendary major leaguers uh, from yesterday. Right. And they're going to think that it was always that way. Right. And, and it's important that they understand that, no, it wasn't always that way. Right. And guys, you got to remember, they didn't play in the Negro Leagues because they wanted to play in the Negro Leagues. They played in the Negro Leagues because they had to play right. in the Negro Leagues. Right. And, and we don't ever want to lose that very triumphant story of what they did. You won't let me play with you. I'll create a league of my own. Mm -hmm. and, and so while I'm excited that Major League Baseball has made this long overdue acknowledgement mm -hmm. and that these records will be integrated into the records of major leaguers, mm -hmm. I can understand where Boa is coming from because it is important that we continue to help people understand what these players had to do that led us to eventually getting to that point. Right. But their story to me becomes even more meaningful and that much more profound. Right. And I hope that it will only enhance the working relationship that we have with both Major League Baseball and the Players Association to make sure that the legacy of the Negro Leagues continues to play on. Oh, I tell you, what a, what a legacy it is, I tell you. Uh, you know what really, really makes me happy um, and, and makes me feel good is that when I see a lot of young people walking around with all of the official uh, shirts now and other collector's items that they've bought, whether it's jerseys, hats, you know, whatever it is, because, you know, you're carrying around so much history when you wear that, you know? So much history. And I look at this photo here. I found this photo this, uh, just th early this afternoon. When I was scouring for a few more things that I wanted to work into the presentation. And this photo blew my mind because in it, I mean, I saw that it has so many different team members in it from many different uh, Negro League teams, the Grays. The New York Black Yankees, um, the new, I didn't even know the name of the Newark team, pardon my yeah, ignorance. The Newark, Newark Eagles. The Newark Eagles. And I live in Ramsey, New Jersey. And I actually went by one of the oldest stadiums in Newark there that's now just got, I believe they just received some big funding yep. and they're going to be, and, and they're going to be able to fix it up, right? Yeah, Hensley Stadium. Right. So I'm really looking forward to learning so much more about that and 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 also seeing that uh, stadium rejuvenated uh, and restored because it's going to be wonderful to have that preserved. Yeah, you know? no, that's a that's a great photograph. That's from the 1939 East West All-Star game, game 
Yeah. And the East-West All-Star Game was one of the greatest sporting events in American sports history. And very few folks know anything about it. It debuted the same year as Major. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. League Baseball's All-Star Game. 1933. Wow. And yes, it did outdraw Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. They would put over 50,000 fans in Chicago's Comiskey Park wow. for the Negro League's version of the All-Star Game. And as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, Black folks would come from as far west by train as Los Angeles, as far south as New Orleans, as far east as New York, converging on Chicago for this huh. showcase event. Wow. Uh, it was special. Anybody who was anybody in black life and entertainment was at these games. You had the creme de la creme. Well, that's uh, a, yeah, yeah. You had a field of supermen, man. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so it was an absolute show. In many ways, it was bigger than the Negro Leagues World Series. Wow. And, and so to be invited to play in the East West All Star game was really special. Wow. And, and so, yeah. And, and again, to put 50,000 people in Comiskey right. under any circumstances <laughs> is no joke. Man. Oh no, that's a lot of people, man. Speaking yeah. of people, let's take, let's take a few more. Let's take some shout outs. Let's take some questions here. So Bo again, uh, Bo is, uh, Bo is uh, hot here. Will the home run totals up? Oh, we need that back on please. Okay. Will the home run totals of Hank Aaron and Willie Mays in the Negro Leagues be included in their MLB totals, Bob? Asking this question because Hank Aaron jokingly, <laughs> Hank Aaron jokingly asked the question. Yeah, because it would mean more for, for Mr. Aaron than it would for Willie. You got to remember, Willie comes to the Birmingham Black Barons when he was 17 years old. Okay. And so it'll add a few more home runs to Willie's total. Unfortunately, Mr. Aaron's totals are not included in the cutoff. Mm. You know, they cut this thing off at 1948. I wish that they had moved this into the 50s, at least 1955. Now, mm. after 55, the Negro Leagues were minor league at best mm. because you had siphoned off all this great talent. But in the early 1950s, you still had major stars playing in the Negro Leagues because by 1948, you've, you only got seven black players in the major leagues. Five of them had gone up in 1947. Mm -hmm. which so many people don't know. I think people just remember Jackie. A few more folks remember Larry Doby. Mm -hmm. And the other three players are the answers to a trivia question. Mm -hmm. Hank Thompson, Willett Brown, and Dan Bankhead. They all go up in 1947. Right. Dan Bankhead is the answer to another trivia question. <laughs> Who was the first Black pitcher in the Major League? Most assumed that it was Satchel. But it was actually Dan Bankhead. Hmm. Very interesting. 48, 48, you get Roy Campanella and Satchel. Right. I tell you, Bob, you are a walking encyclopedia, man. It is it is amazing uh, how much I'm Peter De Silva's here from San Francisco. Peter's an incredible photographer uh, from San Francisco, and he said this is amazing hearing all this and seeing these photos. So right now I'm showing some photos, if I'm correct, of, of Josh Gibson, correct? 
Yeah, that's the great catcher, man. So let me tell you, man, I was watching some film on him and other things that you've talked about on him. This this guy wore a wore a Superman cape, didn't he? He he he's the stuff of legends. You know, when you start talking about Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, and Josh Gibson, I'm not sure there's any more lore or legend surrounding any three athletes than those guys. Right. And Gibson is almost mythical like the power, but the power was very real. Right. You know, the man swung a 40 ounce, 41 inch bat. And as you can see in the photograph, he had that trademark rolled up left sleeve, <laughs> big, powerful arms, forearms, big, powerful thighs. And as Buck O'Neill would say, great eyes, great eyes. And, and Buck would say that Gibson had the eyes of Ted Williams mm. and the power of Babe Ruth <laughs> rolled into one dynamic now Package. Now, was it Josh Gibson? If I'm maybe I'm wrong here, but and, you know it's a lot of history to absorb. But it, and and you're the authority. But is it Josh Gibson that was credited, or uh, there's a not rumor, there's talk that he was actually one of the uh, players that possibly hit a ball out of Yankee hit Stadium. Yeah, hit it completely out of Yankee Stadium. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> Stadium. He's still believed to be the only player. Now Mantle hit one. Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle. Right. Hit right. one that hit the light statue, right? Or it would have gone out, right? But you know, I find it, I find it interesting, Stephen. When I tell people that Gibson hit one out, they'll say, "Oh no, he didn't do that." But when I tell them that Mantle hit one that hit the light pole, they're like, "Well, we'll believe that." Well, if Mantle can hit the light, look at this man. Look, look at the arm. <laughs> look at the look at the build on him, man. And, I mean, and the beauty of Josh Gibson from everybody that I talk to. He didn't have that long looping swing like most power hitters right, do. Right. He was short and compact to the ball, and the ball just exploded off his wow. back. Wow. And, and if wow. you look at that picture with him, look how he has that back grip. That back oh. is gripped down below the knob. That there's no choking up. <laughs> no. Honestly, honestly, I don't think the bat is big enough for him. <laughs> 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 on that note, let's hold on one second. I got to do a quick promo for my sponsor, and then we're going to come right back. Okay? All right. Uh, I use the platform that I am in love with, folks. It's changed my life. It's changed the live streaming game, and it's changed everything about what we do with live streaming, StreamYard. All right. Just wanted to give them their shout for tonight because StreamYard StreamYard shout out because without this platform, <laughs> no, this platform changed my life, man. As a social media and visual strategist and a, you know, a former photo editor at the New York Times for over 15 years, this this has revolutionized everything for me. I'm able to bring my photo skills to the table, my photo editing skills, my social media skills, and now my my whole passion for interviewing and putting a show on with somebody like you. It's it's an honor to have you on. I am so excited to have you on tonight. <laughs> but I enjoy it. Michael Michael here, a friend of mine, um, um, used to be a, a, a an officer in the Sixth Precinct in New York. Says, "What a great interview! I'm learning so much about the Negro League baseball. Anything? I, oh, okay. Actually, you know what? Let's rewind. Leave Michael's question up there for a second, and let's rewind right here. So Michael says." 
Uh, I'm learning so much. Anything on black Cubans or any other black Latino players? Now, I have two sets of photos here. Tell yes. us about that, Bob. Tell us about the influence. And, but also tell us about how special the Negro Leagues were for these players because you tell it. I'm not going to tell it. Well, and, and it was special. The picture on my left, the guy who has Mexico on his on the front, that's mm -hmm. the great Ray Dandridge. Ray Dandridge is still believed to be the greatest third baseman to have never played in the major leagues. Mm. Ray Dandridge made it up to the old Minneapolis Millers, which were the New York Giants AAA team. Mm -hmm. Ray Dandridge was named MVP of the Millers when he was almost 38 years old. There was no room in the major leagues for a 38-year-old black third baseman, so he never got that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But players like Ray Dandridge and so many others right. were oftentimes the first Americans to play in those Spanish-speaking countries. And folks, when they went to those countries, they were treated like heroes. Right. So staying in the finest hotels they're mm -hmm. eating in the finest restaurants mm -hmm. that those countries had to offer and then you come back home and you're treated like a second-class citizen mm. so as a result a lot of negro league players american-born negro league players would call those spanish-speaking countries home in this country the dark-skinned spanish spanish-speaking athlete pictured on the right is the great martin de higo mm -hmm. from cuba mm -hmm. from cuba Nicknamed Michael El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. He is the only baseball player in the history of this sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls. Wow. <laughs> Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Wow. One year, one year in the Mexican League. DeHigo goes 19 and 2 with an 0.90 ERA. Ooh. Oh, but it gets better. The sucker hits 387 that same season. Get out of here. Adding title. Oh that my God. But those dark skinned Spanish speaking athletes like Martin DeHigo could play in the major leagues either. Now, once upon a time, white Cubans could play in the major leagues, but if you were in any dark skin, you couldn't play. So they found sanctuary playing in the Negro Leagues. And, and so it created this bond, this brotherhood amongst players because of baseball. Mm. And, you know, I got to know, oh man, so many of the guys, but my 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 favorite guy was Minnie Minoso, mm. the late, great Minnie Minoso. Uh, just a delightful human being, hailed from Cuba as well. And, you know, we spent so many days and times together through the years, he would always was a frequent visitor to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He played for the New York Cubans. Louis mm. Tion's father, Louis wow. Tion Singer, oh, wow. played for the New York Cubans. Mm. Uh, the Monarchs' first manager was the great Jose Mendez from Cuba. Uh -huh. uh, you know, so there was always this bond and this connection. Uh, you know, it was just so many great players uh, from Cuba in particular yeah. that called the Negro Leagues home. Wow. You know, Toriente. I love saying that name. I uh, can't roll my arms. I'm still working on that. <laughs> <But, you know. laughs> 
<laughs> That's one of the greatest things I love about about Spanish. I should have kept up with my Spanish. I love rolling the R's and everything. You know, it's such a beautiful language. And, uh, you know, just say, I, I used to love saying Tiante's name, just saying Tiante. El Tiante. You know? And, and, and Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill spent time playing in Cuba. He spent time playing in, in Mexico. And he told me that when he went to Cuba to play for the first time, Right. And, you know, this is when Havana was really Havana. Havana is still beautiful. Right. But at that time, Havana was really Havana. And yeah. as Buck would say, the senoritas were, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> now, he eventually became quite fluent in Spanish. Right. But he said when he would first go to those Spanish-speaking countries, he would go into the restaurant and he would do mm. this. Because he had to order fish. Right. He just wave his hand as if it's a fish. <laughs> and they knew that he wanted fish. <laughs> and so he ate a lot of fish. Now, on the flip side of that, my <laughs> dear friend, the late, great Armando Vasquez, God bless his soul. He said the first thing that he learned to order off the menu in English was ham and eggs. <laughs> and he ate a lot of ham and eggs. <laughs> and, and so, but it was a beautiful relationship between those players from those Spanish-speaking countries and the players from the Negro oh, Leagues. Man. We have a great traveling exhibition. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I wanted, uh, yeah, I'm glad you segued into that. Yeah. Um, you know, because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about and uh, is first- With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. First of all, and let's use this to... let's. I was awfully young in that picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're still looking good, man. You're still looking good. And you are one of the finest dressers around, man. Let me tell you something. You got you have to teach me some style tips, man. But every suit, I see you in so many different suits, and you are one sharp dresser, man. But let me tell you something. I wanted to ask you something, and that's a good segue into the traveling collection because here this blew my mind too. So many, everything blows my mind about every story. I tell you what an incredible museum and institution. I want everybody to know, let's stop, pause for a second here. And I want to make a point before we go on to some more stories because there's plenty more to cover. But one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that, um, tell everybody this week, there's something, there's a special thing going on where you're trying to get everybody to contribute online. Uh, and I know Tay Diggs, who is an incredible actor, great writer, um, has been tweeting all week. And he uh, he, um, he even uh, retweeted me on one tweet because of this show, which I was honored uh, because he's such a big supporter of the museum. Tell us, uh, you're trying to raise special funds as always, but tell us some of the ways that fans can really contribute because if they can't get to the museum right now. Yeah, no, we always encourage people to support the effort that we're doing because it is so important that we save this history and that the legacy 
of the Negro League plays on long after there are no more Negro Leaguers to attest to what this story is all about. Mm -hmm. And so on Saturday, we announced a campaign in honor of the 101st anniversary where we're trying to raise $101,000 in the next 101 hours uh, to help with collection, uh, digitizing collection, and educational outreach programs. And you can just visit our website at nlbm.com. If you are so inclined, we would love to have you support what we're doing. We also have a great online gift store so you can buy gear from us as well. And it has oh, man. videos and novelty items. You guys have some real goodies, man. Let me tell you, I went on, I tried to get, but first of all, there's the storm that was going on. And second of all, a lot of the items, a few of them were sold out. I have my eyes on one of those hats that has all the little patches on yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. That it's a, it's like the premier seller, I think. Um, you got to put one of those aside for me one day, man. I got to well, get I'll one of those. That. We'll take care of that. I, I we'll love, I love that hat, man. That hat is yeah. hot. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. but now there was a special thing going on. What Ronaldo says here, I don't really follow baseball, but this is so interesting. And Bob's knowledge of the Negro, whoops, I got cut off there, sorry, of the Negro Leagues is amazing. Um, you know, thank but, you. you know, the, the, the interesting thing, what I love about our museum yes, is that you don't have to be a baseball fan. Right. You know, if you are a fan of American history. Mm -hmm. that, exactly, history, exactly. If you are a fan of the underdog overcoming adversity mm -hmm. to go on to greatness, mm -hmm. you're going to love this museum. Now, if you are a baseball fan to boot, man, you're in hog heaven. <laughs> it combines all of those worlds. And I saw someone flash up about this photograph. Yes, that is Getty Lee. Well, that's what I was going to say, because this story, this is an, uh, one story after the, I mean, God, we could sit here for for 50 hours, you know, for a whole week. <laughs> I mean, so I had no idea that Rush and the lead singer of Rush, Getty Lee, was an avid collector uh, and fan of the Negro Leagues and baseball in general. And so tell the story here, please, Bob. Well, Rush, Rush was playing a concert in Kansas City several years ago, and Getty had a good friend that lived here, sad to say he's recently passed away, mm -hmm. who says, I'm going to take you by to see the Negro Leagues Museum. Well, he is a huge baseball fan. Right. You can still see him at Toronto Blue Jay game. He's <laughs> behind home plate, still keeps score. Mm -hmm. Well, unbeknownst to us at that time, he he's also a huge sports memorabilia collector. And so they bring him by for a tour. I wasn't there that day. One of my other staffers took him on a tour of the museum. And like most who come and visit the museum, he fell in love with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, after leaving, that collection that you have on the screen now came up in an auction. And he decided that he would bid on it with the intent of donating it back to the museum if he was successful in winning it. Wow. Well, he, he wins the bid. His office calls and says, Getty's got a few baseballs he'd like to donate. <laughs> Would you all like to have them? <gasps> well, naturally, we say yes, but we're thinking three or four that he might have picked up somewhere. As you can see, it turned out to be 200. Wow. He has since donated an additional lot of 200, now giving the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum one of the largest collection of single-signed Negro League player wow. autographed baseballs anywhere in the world 
and it's all due to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, a white Canadian rocker. <laughs> you know, you know who, who would have thought, right? <laughs> it just goes to show that the story has no boundaries. It has no limitations. It touches virtually everyone who encounters it. And, and not only did he donate them, right. as you can see in that other picture, right. he came back and dedicated them. Right. And, and so I'll be honest, y'all, I knew who Rush was, but I can't say that I was a big Rush fan, <laughs> but I'm a Rush fan now. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you you are, man. I bet you you are. You know, but the other thing is that let's talk for a sec, uh, not a second, but a minute or two here about the about the um, how where the the museum was founded and how it came about. I'm showing a photo here of, of and the amazing thing on it is, you know, you look at this, you know, I grew up in a very international school going to uh, school with kids from all around the world, from Africa, Haiti, everywhere. Uh, I went to a French school in New York. I was very blessed to have gone there, thanks to my mom. And I have to tell you, when I read things like this and I see this and it says colored YMCA, you know, yeah, it just drives me insane sometimes to think of the struggle and everything else that so many people, players, people in life, uh, African-Americans and others that have gone through that, you know, and now where we are years later at this at this crazy point that we're at with certain things going on. Tell us about the story, Bob, about this. Yeah, that's the Paseo YMCA. Okay. And the Paseo YMCA is not the oldest black YMCA, but certainly one of. Mm-hmm. It was established in 1914, mm-hmm. at least finished in 1914. Six years later, that is where the meeting to start the Negro Leagues took place. Right. That is where Ruth Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners. They met inside that old YMCA, mm-hmm. and out of that meeting, came the birth of the Negro National League, the first wow. successful organized black baseball league. Sad hmm. to say that building had gone into a state of disrepair. It had been boarded up. It had been left abandoned. It was harboring illicit activity. Sad to, sadder to say that there were vagrants living in that building. Hmm. And a, a white philanthropist hmm. by the name of Landon Rowland, who used to serve on our board, he passed away a few years ago. God bless his soul. Mm-hmm. Bought that building from the city, mm-hmm. donated it to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And now we've started the effort to rehabilitate that building, that old historic landmark, to convert it into an education and research center. Oh, wow. And Wonderful. Late great Buck O'Neill and essentially go full circle right back to the very building that gave birth to the story we're now charged with preserving. And so we're excited about the future of this museum. Interestingly enough, it was a white philanthropist by the name of Julius Rosenwald, part of the Sears Roebuck family, who actually was issuing challenge grants back in that time. And both both black and white folks in Kansas City came together and not only met the grant requirements, but exceeded. And then he then matched it and that's how we get the funds to build what will become the Paseo YMCA. 
Ah, well, I want, I'm so glad you were able to tell that story because it's so important to know the, the, you know, the foundation for it all. One of the things I wanted to touch on that's really stood out to me in doing this research this week and learning so much. Oh my God. I'm so in love with this, uh, all this, all these stories is I had no idea the incredible tie in between jazz and and the teams oh, yeah. and and well i just you know i never put two and two together exactly. that way exactly but, and, and that's one of the reasons that when you come to the can come to kansas city the 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 facility that we're housed in is called the museums at 18th and Vine. right so not only is the negro leagues baseball museum inside this facility but right across the hall from us is the american jazz museum right and, and it's unique in terms of having two cultural slices and sharing on the one room well, that, well, that's why yeah, that's why I pulled a couple of photos from the collection here that I, I man, I tell you, man, I went through all of them. I, 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 I went digging, man. I went digging. I tell. And, and that's a great picture of Louis Did Armstrong's he? Secret Nine. Right. They, they I mean, out of New Orleans, as they would say. Wow, yeah, man. The great Louis Armstrong, again, is on the far right on, on, on my screen. Uh, and he had his own semi-pro baseball team. And, and and so yeah, that but that shows you the love uh, of baseball. And, right. And really, all the jazz musicians <laughs> wanted to be baseball players. Well, that's the, the thing, right? Right. Right. Well, look, I found this photo of Lionel Hampton. Yeah, that's Lionel Hampton with Earl Tatum. Right. Yeah, and the, I... great, the great catcher, great catcher for the monarch. And so Buck O'Neill would actually put Hampton. In a monarch uniform, I see. Hamp would serve as an honorary coach. See, wow. Hampton loved the Kansas City Monarch. <laughs> yeah, and that's Hampton in his monarch uniform, talking to uh, the great Earl Tatum. And, and, and yeah, no. He, and, oh man, I tell you, the, all these photos brought so much joy to me this week, man. Boa is back again. Hello, Boa. Boa says Jackie Robinson was the first American player in MLB in approximately fifty years. Prior to nineteen hundred, there were blacks playing in MLB. Do these players get recognized in the museum? Yeah, no, they do, and that's one of the reasons why we were so proud to get the letter written by Bud Fowler. Bud Fowler was one of those players. Moses Fleetwood Walker, uh, who played on a, what would be called a major league team in the late 1800s for a Toledo team, mm. was a barehanded catcher. Mm. Yeah, ouch. Yeah, no, so we do recognize those early era players who actually broke barriers even before Jackie breaks the barrier in what we would call now the modern era of major right. Wow. I want to hit on one more thing here and read Boa's next question. Boa's got a lot of great questions. And thank you so much for contributing to this show, Boa. Uh, before, I want to talk about one more photo here, and then I want to skip ahead just a bit before we jump into a couple of other things, because we have somebody special waiting that I wanted to bring on who took a, one of the best photos I think has ever been taken of your idol, Mr. Aaron. And uh, but tell me quickly here with this photo, uh, put Boa's question back on because we don't want to we want to make sure we acknowledge everything that Boa has been saying. They've been contributing uh, so much here. Moses Fleetwood Walker is largely forgotten in the annals of baseball history. Why isn't he included in discussions of black players in the history of the MLB, Bob? Yeah, he's certainly not included enough. Mm. You know, we feature him prominently at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But a lot of it, boy, is just the fact that people just don't know. Right. And right. as my mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. 
And, and so it's our job, though, to bring those players of yesteryear who have not gotten their just due to light. Right. And, so, and we're working diligently to do that. But by and large, this story was forgotten. It was right. hidden. You know, right. I tell people all the time, American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. Yeah. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and yeah. Americana yeah. away from us. Yeah. So countless generations of us guys have gone through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball, oh, man. but in American history. Yep. Ain't that and, the truth? For the, for the people who come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they come and they are absolutely amazed by what they learn. Mm-hmm. But Stephen, they leave dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn it. Right. Why didn't I know this when I was in school? And, and we know that there are gaps in the pages of American history books. Oh, there yeah. <laughs> so many who have contributed to the greatness of this country and their stories have really never been told and certainly not told in their proper perspective. Oh. And so it is important that we have these cultural institutions like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum right. to bring these stories to light. Right. And I can tell you this, to a person that comes to the museum, they don't like the fact that someone arbitrarily tried to decide what you and I know. We as Americans don't take too kindly to that. No, no. Well, I I am so thankful to 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 learn so much more about the museum and everything else, and to share all these important photos and historical photos and knowledge, and get people there when this pandemic hopefully subsides a bit, and also, but go online and check out so many things. But tell me quickly one more thing here, and then we're going to skip to our special guest here, uh, who's coming on in a sec. Um, I had no idea, and here's another real treat: Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride. Yeah, was, great country wrestling singer. Yeah, I mean, what was his quick, uh, I mean, not quickly, but in summary, what was his association with, with the Negro Leagues, uh, Bob? He played in the Negro Leagues. Wow. Yeah, Pride <laughs> played in the Negro Leagues. Charlie Pride was an aspiring professional baseball player. Baseball I, was his first love. I did and not so know he that. to play in the Negro Leagues for both the Memphis Red Sox and later the Birmingham Black Barons. <sighs> he would actually make it into your New York Yankees organization before he hurt his arm. And it was after he hurt his arm that he fell back on a pioneering country Western music career, some 72 million albums sold later. And as I always tell our guests, we should all have a fallback career like Charlie Pride. Oh yeah. So yeah, but it's one of those things that a lot of people didn't know, and you know, it still saddens me that we lost Charlie last year. And yeah, last year was devastating for losses. The early part of this year, oh man, deeply devastating for losses, oh. particularly in the baseball world. And, well, and Charlie was a mainstay at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Right. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I told folks upon his death, whenever Charlie would come out to make an appearance and do something you know, playing the Buck O'Neill Golf Classic or whatever, mm. a good tar just seems to always magically show up. Somebody got a good tar with him, and, and Charlie never seemed to pass up an opportunity to entertain us, man. It, it was always special when he was around. It really was. And, and so, again, a part of my heart is missing, you know, over the loss mm. of Lou Brock, Joe oh. Morgan, 
Charlie Pride. Uh, These were dear friends. Oh, this yeah. year, Henry Aaron. Oh. I mean, you know, that it, it, it hurts. And yep. you know, you know, you you never become numb to this. Right. Every time we lose one of those players, right. you feel like you've lost an extended member of your family. Right. And 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 of course we experience great loss in this work. Well Many that's players, they were old when I met them. Right. I'm getting old. Right. And, I know. And, and so you know that they're going to pass on. Yep. But it never makes it any easier. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And speaking of 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 getting to know people and somebody else who I also idolize, you know, I know he had a lot of thoughts and and he wrote an incredible um post a few a uh, while ago when uh, Mr. Aaron passed away. But let's bring him on. I'd like to introduce you Bob to Jeffrey Salter. Jeffrey, Jeffrey is an incredible photographer who I've had on the show. Uh, he's a former colleague of mine at the New York Times. And um, I have to tell you, he took a photo of, of Mr. Aaron, Hank Aaron, and also um, Bob Motley, yes. uh, who were showing here with other umpires. And here's this great book that was out called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, written by uh, Bob Motley with his son, Byron. And look at that photo, man. You know of him, and he put I'm, on a show, man. Oh the man, look at part of the show too. Look at the umpires <laughs> shows, but but I brought Jeffrey on because Jeffrey did this wonderful photo shoot. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Kaplan. It's a pleasure being here, Mr. Uh, Kaplan. Mr. <laughs> Kaplan, I'm from, I'm, I'm from Texas, and I'm a military brat. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I had to bring uh, Jeffrey on because he took these wonderful photos that captured my heart back when I had him on my show earlier in the year. And we talked about uh, the day he met Mr. Motley and uh, and he went out and he photographed him and he told this really endearing story about him and his wife. Why don't you tell it, uh, um, Jeffrey, about when you met him and you were going to, you know, you spent the day with him. Yeah, that was so uh, such a wonderful time I spent with Mr. Motley. Um, but I remember going to their home, and uh, it was a three-part story. We were going to photograph them at the stadium, yeah, and at, and at his house, and at the museum. And um, first part of this story, we were at his home, and we um, he was with his lovely wife, and they were, she plays the piano. Oh, well, I guess that that's right. I didn't see that picture. But the first part of the story, we were at their home. And then afterwards, uh, we um, we were going to go to the stadium. And I said to Mr. Motley, I said, look, why don't you get in the van and we'll drive you there to the stadium? And he says, no, 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 no. We will we'll, we'll, we can drive ourselves. I'm saying, and I got a little bit nervous there because he, <laughs> he was up there and a little bit in, the, in some time on the planet so i was a little bit worried <laughs> so anyway we all loaded up we all left and lo and behold he made it to his stadium with his lovely wife just waiting for we were he was out there on the field ready to go it was raining a little bit and he was standing there in the rain waiting on us you know and we, right. well, we were all worried about him right <laughs> You know, I love that story because, you know, here you are, you know, I mean, Mr. Molly was, you know, older at the time and to, to you know, worry about him and him and his wife are taken off in the car and they beat you there. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. In the rain. <laughs> in the rain. In the rain. And then, yeah. and then, and then endured the photo shoot in the rain. Yes, yeah, indeed. What year, but, what year was that? You remember what year that was? You know what? I, I don't necessarily remember it. 
to be honest with you, but it was in a, I know I don't even remember it, but it was a great time. But I don't know if you had a shot of him when he's holding the Congressional Medal, Medal of Honor. Oh, you know, I meant to put that in the show, and and how did I miss that? Um, yeah, but, he, was so, he was so proud. Yeah, he was, he was awarded oh, yeah. the Congressional and, Medal and, of Honor. Mm-hmm. And we installed a statue of him at the museum. Right. And, and, and he knew that the statue was going in, but he passed away before we got it installed. Mm. And uh, so the umpire is proudly on the field of legends calling balls and strikes uh, as he once did back in those glory days of umpiring in the Negro Leagues, which he was so proud of. And then we have his case that has his uniform, his his Uh umpiring gear in the case as well. And and he too was one of the founding members of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's right. The only only umpire to ever throw Buck O'Neill out of a game. (laughs) Yeah, oh wait, Bob, Bob, years. Bob! You got to tell that story. Tell that story, yeah. Bob. In, in Buck's almost seventy years in baseball, he got thrown out of one game, and it was his friend Bob Motley that rung him up. And, wow! And, and wow! It was it was over a disputed <laughs> infield fly rule, and, and Buck thought that Bob had messed it up, and I guess Buck said the magic word or the magic words, and, and Bob rung him up. But that night. The two of them had to sleep in the same bed. Oh my God. Because there weren't enough hotels to go around. And, and Buck said in that beautiful baritone voice of his, he said, I turned my back to that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> but the two of them were great friends. Oh years man. Years. What a what a um, great, what a great, what a great story, man. I love that. I've listened to it like four times this week. It's such a great wow. story. You know, but you look at you look at Bob Motley's face, and man, I'm telling you, what a what a a priceless individual he was, you know? No, I, I miss I miss my friend. Uh, I was honored to speak at his services. Oh, man, and, wow. You know, and, it, and again, it, it's an honor, but these things are never easy. Right. You know, yeah. and, and you, you, miss, you miss these people who you become so close to. Right. You, know, you, and, you and Jeffrey, so a special individual. you and Jeffrey must have missed each other that day because Jeffrey was there photographing him on the field exactly. of legends. I I, I, I yeah. missed that. That's why I was curious about what year it was. Well, that's why I'm so glad to bring you two together this way. This is great. This is yeah. great. So, and then, and then the photos are beautiful. Well, and then, so we're going to show some, a few photos here of, of Henry Aaron when he was getting ready uh, to uh, leave home and, and hit the road, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think I remember you telling a story, Bob, about this, where he said he, he basically had like a ham sandwich <laughs> and uh, a few dollars in his pocket. and Yeah, no, he's, he's 18 years old. And, and hit the road, place. right? Standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama, <laughs> about to go leave home, likely for the first time, guys. You know, mm. he chase his dream of playing professional baseball with the Indianapolis right. Clowns. Mm-hmm. And, right. and you can tell he's frail, Day. He may have weighed 150 pounds in this photograph. And wow. You see that look of, yeah. you know, I ain't too sure about this, but this is really what I want to do. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to go. And, yeah. and he told me in that duffel bag that, that's by his foot that he said, Bob, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag. Wow. A dollar 50 cents in my pocket <laughs> and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me going to go chase that dream. Wow, and man. at that time, guys, Henry Aaron was a skinny, 
cross-handed hitting shortstop. So he was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. Wow. And that is, of course, unorthodox. Yeah. The fear is that you would break your wrist hitting in that manner. Sure. Well, Henry Aaron is knocking the cover. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Here's to getting back together, to planned lunches and unplanned cookouts, to grandma's recipes and smells that take us back, to passing down plates and traditions. Here's to warm embraces and familiar faces, to your best friends becoming best friends, to scheming, dreaming, and food still steaming. Here's to laughter and love, to growing closer than ever, for all of life's get-togethers. Chinette, here's to us off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he wow. gets to the clowns, they put the right hand on top and the rest, as they say, is history. He shortly after was discovered by the Boston Braves, mm -hmm. who would become the Milwaukee Braves, who of course would become the Atlanta Braves. Right. And Henry Aaron will go down in this sport as one of his all-time greatest players. But it all began in the Negro Leagues, 1952, with the Indianapolis Clowns. That's right. Mm -hmm. And and then here we have the photo of when he made it to the Braves. Yeah. And, See, and he's starting to fill out there. He's yeah, he started he started to fill out. He yeah. sure did. And yeah. then and then we have uh the, of course, you know, um um uh Jackie yeah. uh and everything. But what I oh, I wanted to do saw, was was bring I didn't was, know I didn't know Jeffrey had shot that. Well, that's why I that's why I tagged you on the photo because I wanted you to see this photo because I tell you I've seen a lot of great portraits in my time having edited photos from all around the world for years, um, but when I saw this photo of Hank Aaron, Je uh, Jeffrey, it's one mm -hmm. of the it, it's a photo that'll go down and should be one of the greatest portraits ever done of of Mr. Aaron. Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate that. And that the was warmth. That the warmth in in this photo is overwhelming. It really is. Well, you know, it's 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 all about the energy that Mr. Aaron was reflecting. He's a warm, uh, inspirational figure, and uh, and uh, you know, the story behind this picture is um, we were supposed to photograph him at Brave Stadium, and it was like a rainy day, and and um, we'd all set up the equipment and everything for Sports Illustrated magazine. And then my phone rings and the editor is calling me saying, hey, uh, we can't do the shoot today. Uh, Mr. Aaron can't make it to the stadium, but he wants you to come to his home. Wow. And I said, are you sure about that? And he says, yeah, <laughs> you can come to his home. And uh, when we got there, it was just uh, it was such, a, such an honor because he has all these pictures of himself with uh, presidents and dignitaries from all over the world. There's paintings and his wife was so kind to us, offered us some sweet tea. And I joked <laughs> with her about some, about some collard greens. <laughs> so, so, uh, I mentioned you know, her about, a little bit about my dad since uh, they mm -hmm. both grew up in Alabama. Right. 
As a matter of fact, I wrote a post on um, Facebook about yeah. how uh, my dad was the same around the same age as Mr. Aaron, and how uh, his choice of weapons to get to, to fight himself out of uh, to uh, to uh, fight off and uh, poverty and uh, find a better way of living and uh, escape racism in the South was to join the military. And my dad uh, would always talk about uh, Mr. Aaron, but during this time period, um, while Mr. Aaron was achieving his goals uh, on the baseball field, a lot of African-American soldiers were in the Korean War and in foxholes. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and their weapons, um, and, and I don't know if you know about it, most African-Americans, when they were first in the army during that time period, they were assigned like, Chef, uh, cooks or truck drivers or stewards and things like that and they didn't have any weapon trainings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but when the korean war first broke out they were sent to the front they were the first ones sent first to the front ones line. sent to the front lines yeah. and they didn't have the, the right equipment they didn't have even blankets to keep themselves warm mm. but they were they were all just fighters and and um and i know that my father when he was in his foxhole would always talk about well, he told me, you know what? Back home, uh, Mr. Aaron is knocking some baseball, knocking the heck out of some baseballs. So when I get back, I'll have, I'll, I'd be have a, a nice person to think about. And in his foxhole, this is uh, inspiring me to keep on fighting for my family as well. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, no when, you, uh, when, you, when you told, when that, you story, told that story... I'm getting an echo here. Sorry, I don't know why. Um, when you told that story, it, it really, you know, was so you you told it so well. Uh, I know it was a post on Facebook, but I read every word, and um, it, it really, really taught me so much. Um, you know, Jeffrey, I have to tell you, you know, the there are a lot of photographers that it could have could have taken certain portraits but like i said in my opinion it's it's one of the best that's ever been taken of him one Thank of the things you. i wanted to ask you though uh, bob if you don't mind me if you don't mind me asking jeffrey a question here is i wanted to check with him for a second you know jeffrey so you photograph bob motley you photograph hank aaron you photograph many great athletes around the world i know you have for sports illustrated covers wow. galore i mean you own sports illustrated covers man <laughs> And yours are some of the most creative and beautiful covers I've ever seen. Brad Smith will attest to that. So, but when you see a young man, for example, like this at, uh, I believe he was playing for Grambling, correct? Now, this is actually a 14-year-old boy who's going to be, uh, the, he's the next generation of football, of baseball greats. Right. So what I was going to ask you was, you know, it must be something when you when you go to photograph a young man like this who's um, playing the game and everything else, standing there wondering, will he be next one of the next greats? You know, you know, it, a lot of these players, they have one thing in common, and that's discipline, mm -hmm. discipline and a sense of pride and a sense mm -hmm. of vision of what they could be, you know. Mm -hmm. And well, I, I can see that in a lot of these athletes' eyes, and I believe that they're going to do well. You know, they just have that. You know, right? But well, I mean, back, if you can go back, Stefan, to two more, I want to just talk about Mr. Aaron just for a brief second. Oh, please, please. Okay, now we uh, we start shooting this photograph at his home, and um, about halfway through the session, I noticed uh, Mr. Aaron was getting a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. So, um, and 
So I, I said, let's wrap, wrap this up. And then at the last moment, uh, Mr. Aaron just kind of closed his eyes in a moment of reflection and just leaned his lips on his bat. Mm. And then, and I just clicked it. I only got a couple frames of that, but, um, but that was the moment. And then we wrapped it up and then we went to the, we started loading up the equipment. And then my, uh, the editor caught me at the magazine and I was telling her about the shoot and she says, Hey, did you know that Mr. Aaron had just got out of hip surgery four days before this photo shoot? Oh, wow. And I was yeah. saying, well, <laughs> he probably shouldn't have been doing this, but, but and he was in obvious pain, but he said he was going to do the photo shoot. Wow. And he's a man of his word, you know, and, uh, and I says, wow, this is what it means, you know. Wow, this what is, a... What he lives up to all the things people say about him. I've oh, got a no chance question. to witness it no firsthand. Yeah. No question. And, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. He was my childhood idol as a kid growing up in tiny Crawfordville, Georgia, about mm -hmm. 80 miles east of Atlanta and mm -hmm. about 50 miles west of Augusta. So almost between the two cities, all the 500 people. And we, most of us, grow up with sports heroes. And I'm a lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, and Henry Aaron was my favorite, all-time favorite Major League ball player. And as I mentioned, my childhood idol. Mm -hmm. And it's rare that we get to meet our sports heroes. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to do that. And sometimes they don't live up to the lofty expectations that mm -hmm. we have of them. But in the case of Henry Aaron, Jeffrey, I concur. He was everything and more that this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia, could have ever imagined. Mm. And the times that I got to spend with him are some of the most precious times in my mm -hmm. life. And I got to walk my childhood idol through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Wow. Yeah, wow. he and his wife, he and his wife, his lovely wife, Billy, they joined me. This is 1999, mm -hmm. and baseball was celebrating the 25th anniversary mm -hmm. of Mr. Aaron breaking Ruth's record. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and fellas, it, it's, it's sad to say that it really took him 25 years right. before he could actually enjoy what many thought was the most prestigious sports accomplishment mm -hmm. of all time because yeah. of all the hate and vitriol yeah. that was surrounding his chase of Ruth's record. Yeah. You know, his mm. family is in hiding. He's getting bags and wow. bags, bags of hate mail, Jeez. death threats. You know, I think it was like close to a million pieces of hate mail. And, and guys, this is 1974. Well, you know, you know, after you tell all that, Bob, it makes me think back to the moment, which I've watched a million times, like many of us have, of 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 Miss of Hank Aaron rounding the bases when he broke the record, and those two guys start running out on the field and running up to him. If you notice, when you tell that story, it really hits home because if you notice, he normally probably wouldn't even think of doing that, but he uh, reflex was to push them away because. He probably thought, who knows, was he going to get assaulted on the field? Well, of course, because as he's circling the bases, he doesn't know if he's going to make it around the right. bases. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the other side of this thing is that his bodyguard was armed. His bodyguard was armed. Wow. And I believe wow. that there were snipers in the ballpark because of the death threats. And I can tell you right now, guys, there were no idle death threats 
for a black man in the South in 1970s. No, no, they so weren't. You took this very serious. Yeah. Mm. And you think about in his time, he had already witnessed Dr. King assassinated. He had seen mm. two Kennedys assassinated, mm. Malcolm X assassinated. So these death threats were not hollow. And, and so you're right, Stephen, as he's running the bases, he doesn't know what these two kids, these two kids are coming out to celebrate. Yep. But how tragic would this have become oh. if someone mm -hmm. had been trigger happy? Oh, stop, please. You know, oh my right? gosh. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just a blessing yeah. that people let that play out. Yeah. And, and it was just two kids coming out to celebrate oh. what was likely, certainly in my lifetime, the greatest sport accomplishment ever. Yeah. And, and it literally took him 25 years to exhale and celebrate. And, and so I got a chance to take him on a tour of the museum. And then he did a public program. <clears> and <throat> after that, I got to eat Casey barbecue with my childhood idol. Wow. We're sitting over a platter of Gates barbecue ribs, me and my childhood idol and Mrs. Aaron. Wow. And every time they would see me, they would say, wait a minute, you didn't bring any reels with you? And, and so <laughs> it, it just got getting together to that for me. You know, I don't want to skip over anything here, but we're going to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, uh, um, no, we're going to have to talk about a couple of things here. But one of the things that I quickly wanted to get to here, because you can't close a show on, on the Negro Leagues and the history, this incredible history that we've talked about for almost an hour and 20 minutes here. But one of the things I, which could go on and on, and I would, is that Let's talk briefly for uh, uh, about uh, about the, the amazing, the phenomenal athlete that Satchel Satchel Page was. Yeah, we're gonna have to do another show. We oh, well, let's do it. Let's talk about Satchel, man, because Satchel was that good. He he was that good. Wow. And, and and that picture that you don't see a name on the uniform, that's him playing in Cuba. And then the other picture of him is of him as a member of the great 1942. Kansas City Monarchs. How about they that? They won the World Series that year. Mm -hmm. and, and that's Satchel with Jackie Robinson. They yep, were it sure in is. 1945. Yep. And everything that you've heard about Satchel, it is true and is even better than that. I mean, wow. <laughs> I think that you, for me, Satchel Page is the greatest pitcher of all time. Mm -hmm. and, and there is no question that he's the oldest rookie in Major League Baseball history. Mm -hmm. But as I tell people all the time, there'll never be another Leroy Satchel Page. Mm -hmm. Not someone who combines the longevity by his estimation pitched in over 2,600 games, wow. recorded some 55 no-hitters, mm -hmm. and only God knows how many strikeouts. <laughs> the, the charisma. He could sell it. Yeah, he could sell it, and, and he could back it up. There, he was, or I should say, Muhammad Ali was the satchel page of boxing. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is one quick story, and then we're going to end on that, because I have to tell, let you tell okay. this story, because this is phenomenal, Jeffrey. This story blew me away. Yeah, tell, that's tell. That's the house of David. Folks. Yeah, and tell and, and tell the tell the quick story, Bob, please, if you would, yep. about about what Satchel did with them. <laughs> well, the house of David was a religious sect based out of Benton Harbor, Michigan, and as you can see, they were characterized by the very long hair and very long whiskers. Right. Well, they were essentially mimicking David from the Bible, 
And so they would use baseball to spread their gospel and they would play with and against Negro League teams, most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. Well, <laughs> one of my favorite stories associated with the House of David, 1934, the Denver Post Tournament becomes the first organized tournament to integrate. And the House of David would recruit Satchel Paige to pitch for them. Mm. And, and, and legend has it that Satchel wanting to look like his white teammate. I tell people all the time, Jeffrey, you can't make this stuff up. It's too good. Yeah. <laughs> Satchel wanting to look like his white teammates put on a wig and a fake red beard and would strike out 51 hitters in this <laughs> game and the House of David would win the $7,500 prize money and you can rest assured that Satchel got a large percentage of that $7,500 prize money. Indeed. But also the tremendous talent of one Leroy Satchel Page. Wow. Well, praise the wow. Lord and pass the baseball. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That that's that's the note right there, man. Praise the Lord and pass the baseball. There you go. But let me tell you, no, Bob, we're gonna have to do another show because I mean there's so many other I'm gonna scroll through a few of these to go forward because we went forward and when we went behind. But you know, I wanna let's close on this note because this is something of historical importance that I think would be a great close for this show tonight. Let's close on this note. Tell us about the importance that was given to Babe Ruth and other players. No disrespect, but the players that were given credit for introducing baseball to the Japanese and Asian culture and everything. But that wasn't always the case, right? It wasn't the case. Okay, Ruth so so school, school us. School us and correct everything on that, please. Ruth and his All-Stars get credit for taking professional baseball to Japan. Right. 1932-33, somewhere along that line, right. when in actuality, it was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants, hmm. a barnstorming tour uh, of Negro League players who go to Japan in 1927. Wow. A 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. <laughs> the tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his all-stars would get invited over. And let me tell you, on that Philadelphia Royal Giant team of 27, there were two future Hall of Famers, Andy Cooper, who was a great pitcher in the Negro Leagues, and Raleigh Biz Mackey, who coincidentally, guys, taught the great Roy Campanella how to catch. Mm. Yes, wow. Biz Mackey. Was there. So, yeah, two Hall of Famers on that team. And, and the Japanese who had been playing baseball, mm -hmm. but they had not seen professional baseball until 1927. And the Negro Leagues are credited with having lit that fuel under them. And of course, professional baseball in Japan now is like, I mean, they go nuts over professional baseball. And it's oh. really all due to the Negro Leagues that gave them the encouragement that ultimately led to them creating their own professional league. There you and, go. And, but it's one of those little known facts and really, when we talk about the game being a global game and, and, and Major League Baseball is just that. There are so mm -hmm. many ethnicities mm -hmm. that make up a Major League roster oh, on any given day. It's amazing. But at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. Right. They helped wow. make the game the global game that it is. Right. Well, you know what? 
I uh, let's 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 end it right there, man. Because you know what? I wanted to end it with busting up a myth <laughs> and <laughs> and a story that that once again, like you said earlier, many stories and things is, uh, and the history have been taught in textbooks and other things in schools. But a lot of these things need to be rewritten for the actual facts, you know? Yeah. Well, you so, know, what we're trying to do is set the record straight. That's and, all. And, that's and it. People want the truth. They do. They want the truth. Yeah, man. Yeah. I want the and, truth. Uh, I want the truth. I know everybody. Uh, not everybody, but uh, we know not everybody, <laughs> unfortunately. But a lot of people want the truth. And you know what? Thanks to great storytellers. And um, and people such as yourself leading the way with the Negro Leagues Museum and your staff. And, you know, it's not a one person show. I'm sure you have an incredible staff there doing everything. Um, I I wanted to give a quick shout out uh, at the end here. I'm going to zip through these and do something real quick here. I wanted to give a shout out. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody who this is? That's our community engagement manager, uh, Kiana Sings, who's doing a great job for right. us. I and wanted to give a quick shout out for her because a lot, particularly in this arena of social media. Yeah. Uh, you got old folk like me trying to act like I know what I'm doing. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and so it's nice to have somebody on board who does know what they're doing. Well, <laughs> I'm a social media and visual strategist. I do this for a living. And when I saw all the work she does, I knew right away you have somebody very special there. So that's my special way to end this show is with a shout out to your uh, to your um, um, social media expert there at the museum and community engagement specialist. But mm -hmm. listen, to uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, what an incredible thing but once again everybody please support this great institution uh support everything about it learn more about the negro leagues museum and its mission and everything that there is there's 22 stories on their website called story that bob narrates i listened to all 22 this week <laughs> i overdosed on them they were <laughs> they were fantastic wow and i have learned more than i could have learned in one week ever and bob i thank you for that i thank you for reigniting my passion for the game in in just a small amount of time um and jeffrey i wanted to thank you i know you drove a long way home to come yeah. on here to come on here right away and pop in here and share your beautiful photos which i'm always a big fan of absolutely gorgeous man kudos yeah there you go listen thank you to you both would you both hold on for one second i'm going to say good night to everybody and then i just want to talk to you behind stage for a minute okay all right, I'll be oh, okay. Look at that. Look at that. What are we what are we holding there, Jeffrey? A very nice man in on Facebook, Frank Leo Mio, M-E-O, sent me this baseball bat. Signed by Hank Aaron. Wow, oh, wow. look at that, yeah. man. Little slugger. Holy so Mac. I have a feeling, Bob, that's gonna end up in your museum. <laughs> 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 I have a feeling, <laughs> Jeffrey. I have a, I have a feeling that's going to end up in Bob's museum. <laughs> well, I should say the People's Museum, not Bob's museum. But I should say the, But let yeah, me let me like let me bring on for one second because I couldn't do this show without his help behind the scenes, driving all the uh, comments and the banners and the tickers, and he helps me throughout the week. Uh, keep my composure about putting a show like this together. I hope I did you both proud with this show. Uh, let me bring on quickly Jonathan Borstein, my assistant. To Jonathan, hey, unmute yourself. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. 
It could be better that way. But, no, uh, <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to introduce Jonathan, uh, my co-producer, and uh, let him have a word, please. <laughs> um, wonderful show. I learned so much. I'd like to make a quick uh, a comment to Boa Smith, who's posted some wonderful questions and comments, and we couldn't post them all. Uh, so, uh, but for people who are reading the comments, she has interesting uh, statements about uh, Willie Mays. Please look at them. Thank you. Okay. Okay. We'll make sure we do that. Okay. All right. So, Jonathan, tell everybody a quick little snippet of yourself, and then we're going to say goodnight. I am a full-time writer, um, part-time tech, and as always, a fada in New York. All right. <laughs> everybody, the great Jonathan Borstein, Bob Kendrick, thank you so much. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Hold on. I'll be right. I'll be behind back. I'll be backstage in a minute with you. Hold on. I'll be right there. Okay, everybody, it's been another incredible Spin It Social Hour. I have learned so much. I fell in love with all these photos and the stories. Thank you so much for being here. I want to tell you quickly about our guest next uh, uh, in two Thursdays from now, where every other Thursday now at 9 p.m. Um, so please help me welcome on Thursday, March 4th at 9 p.m. My guest will be Tai Chi from New York and New Jersey, the whole regional area here of Tai Chi Photography. He's a wonderful creative spirit out there who I met through another friend of mine, Barry Richards, who chimed in earlier on the show through a Jersey Photography Network, a Jersey City Photography Network. He does some really creative stuff, a lot of post-production work. I wanted to introduce him to the world on my show and let you know more about him. So please join me for that very special show. And quickly, I'm going to say one thing. Uh, I am a uh, social media and visual strategist and live stream production uh, specialist and social media coaching. Please reach out to me if you need anything. I appreciate your time and uh, joining up with me on different projects. And finally, I wanted to say, please join my dear colleague and somebody who's so near and dear to me in general. We've done so much work together over the years. Sri Srinivasan and Neil Parekh on the Sri Sunday NYT read along. This Sunday is Elizabeth Becker, a former NYT reporter and author of You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. That sounds fascinating. Join Sri. I uh, got connected to Bob uh, through Sri uh, by once he was on Sri's show. And I had to have him on here to tell the photo end of the whole story. So it's been wonderful. So once again, folks, thank you so much for being here. Join me next week for Tai Chi and have a great week. Be safe. Be careful out there and take care. OK, thank you for being here with the Spin It Social Hour, folks. Good night. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. 
Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.